1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Warren Smith, our guest today, Vice President of World News Group. He publishes World Magazine. He's the author of more than 10 best-selling books, including the most newly released, Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People. And maybe one of the big operative words in that book title, Warren, is everyday people. We look, as we intimated at the beginning of our conversation, at the headlines and what's going on in terms of racial unrest economic imbalance social strife all of this taking place it's it's hard obviously uh, and frustrating for a lot of people and then to maybe overwhelming in the sense that people feel as if well you know they'd like to be involved in being an agent of change and and affecting god's plan for uh, redemption reconciliation and restoration but maybe they feel like well as overwhelming as all this is though isn't my work largely going to be for naught and, and and ultimately insignificant
3: well, you know, it's a really great question, and that's why we wanted to tell stories of everyday people, as you said, uh, Craig. You know, uh, John Stone Street, uh, my co-author, uh, works a lot with Eric Metaxas uh, on the Breakpoint Radio uh, program. Eric has written books, uh, uh, biographies of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and William Wilberforce, who ended the slave trade uh, in Britain in the 19th century. And it's easy to look at these great heroes of history and say, I'm just little Warren Smith. You know, I'm not uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer or or, um, Eric Metaxas, even. Uh, So, what can I do? And what we discovered in in our searching around for stories and the stories that we recorded in the book uh, were stories of of individuals not doing great things but doing small but really important things that had an impact over time. I'll give you a real quick example, and that is look at the life movement in this country, the pro-life movement in this country. Um, Roe v. Wade happened in 1973, 1.3, 1.4 million abortions in this country per year at the peak back a number of years ago, but what we, what has turned the tide, if you, today Abortions, the number of abortions are going down. The younger generation is more pro-life than its parents. That's what public opinion surveys tell us. How did that happen? And and a part of the reason it happened was because of the pregnancy care center movement in this country. In thousands of communities all across America, uh, men and women have gotten together just to help other men and women in their local communities. Uh, this, This movement has sprung up spontaneously. It wasn't. Uh, a top-down movement. There wasn't somebody in Washington, D.C. or New York City or wherever saying, we we need to go uh, form 2,000 pregnancy care centers all across America. And yet, when we look, you know, 20 or 25 years after that movement started, that's exactly what we, what we have. It's, it's Christians imitating other Christians doing good work, which has caused the pregnancy care center movement to spread across this country and has created what we like to call this army of compassion that, that says to the world, you know, Christians are willing to put their money where their mouth is yes they uh, they are engaged in pro life activism. they are in, maybe engaged even in protests from time to time, but that's not all they do. They are also really caring uh, for men and women in crisis situations every single day in thousands of communities across america it's made a huge difference in the life uh, issue in this country, and I think that kind of a movement could make a difference with poverty, it could make a difference with marriage. Uh, and uh, we, the good news is we do have that one model. Uh, the other news, I won't call it bad news, but I'll call it the other news, is that we still have a whole lot of work to do.
2: Well, and you know what strikes me about even that example that you just shared, Warren, um, many people have often heard the story that from space, one of the more spectacular man-made um, edifices or, or uh, items that can be seen from space is the Great Wall of China, and, and it is from photographs that perhaps you've seen a, a, an amazing sight to behold from so many miles up. And there you can very clearly make out the wall snaking its way uh, through that section of China. What's ironic about this uh, that is, having seen the wall, been on it, walked on it, uh, it, it is enormous. It is breathtaking. It is an incredible uh, work of, of feat to be sure. But you know what it's made up of? Individual small bricks. Yep. Any one of those bricks, by and of themselves, would not even be a speck on planet Earth that could be identified from space. But all of those bricks assembled together... Creates this incredible edifice that has such an Im- impact that it can be seen from space, and it, and it 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 dawns on me, Warren, that much the same is true of our efforts here. That you know, none of us singularly are going to calm racial unrest, or uh, you know, bring about uh, fairness in in economics, or uh, settle social strife of an, uh, singularly on our own, but together. Doing a lot of small things together can really equal doing something great and tremendous that can have unbelievably large and eternal impact, can't it?
3: Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, the thing that we do doesn't even have to require a lot of time, money, and energy. At the end of Restoring All Things, both John Stone Street and I tell a story out of our own lives to kind of make the point of the book. John tells a remarkable story of when he was a high, in high school. Uh, uh, he uh, had it, it really because he'd been cutting up in school. His teacher made him visit an older woman, a sh- what we used to call a shut-in, uh, jo- and uh, as punishment for, for cutting up in class. But so John visited this woman, who at that time was in uh, probably seemed ancient to John, was in her seventies or even early eighties, and they just spent thirty minutes together, maybe an hour together. And John saw this woman a couple of years later, and and John said, "Do you remember who I am?" And the woman said, I have been praying for you every day since we first met. And that just, the woman's praying for him and then telling John that she had been doing that, that she cared enough about him to pray for him every day. John will tell you today that that changed the trajectory of his life. In my own life, I've got a story of my father who served in Korea. He was not a Christian believer whenever he was a 21-year-old infantryman on Heartbreak Ridge in Korea but a Salvation Army worker whose name my father does not know, whose name is completely lost to history, uh, ministered to my father at a time of great need in his life. My father didn't become a Christian until 10 or 15 years later but he always remembers the the act of compassion by this unnamed Salvation Army worker has been, having been a defining experience in his life in leading him ultimately to Christ, which of course changed the trajectory of my life and my children's lives. We don't know how God is going to use our availability. Uh, it's not about our ability, as the old saying goes, but it truly is about our availability. Our job, our goal, our responsibility is just to be obedient and to let the holy spirit work from there and i i think that uh, great things will happen in the absolutely
2: world of and of course through that act of obedience warren can come uh, god executing on his plan for redemption reconciliation and restoration warren smith again the book is called Restoring All Things, God's audacious plan to change the world through everyday people. Newly released by Baker Books and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Amazon.com, and also through their website at restoringallthings.org. That's restoringallthings.org. And our thanks to Warren Smith for being with us on this segment of Lifeline.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Many of you out there perhaps are uh, part-time gardeners or like to... uh What's the word, not tweak? I'm trying to think what is, it, what is the proper, appropriate term here, Jarrell. You, you, you love to meddle around in the garden. <laughs> uh, your spouse might say occasionally killing plants. As certainly that's, uh, that's one of my uh, badges that I wear none too proudly. But uh, you know, then again, you might have some luck and success once in a while. You certainly know that there are times and seasons when older plants, more mature plants, uh, begin facing some growth. Challenges. Uh, seemingly, no matter how much water you feed them or how oftentimes you uh, turn them to make sure they're facing the light, uh, their leaves begin to get yellowed. Uh, the edges perhaps begin to, to grow brown. There is a lot less new growth. And the older growth, quite frankly, is looking dingy, tired, and worn out. So what do you do? Is there a way in which you can revitalize and bring new life to that plant and hope that it will um, somehow will carry on further? Well, one of the big methods is plants like that oftentimes become uh, root bound, particularly when they're potted plants, and so it requires going in, uh, removing the potting uh, around them, uh, trimming the root, which sometimes can be a painful process, and then of course, replanting that plant in new soil, fresh fertilizer, lots of water, lots of sunlight. And the vast majority of times, in fact, that replanting process, as time-consuming and perhaps painful as it might be, in shock to the plant initially so, can be the long-term solution to giving that plant a new lease on life. Let's think of that same analogy when it comes to churches and church planting. Does it sound familiar, a congregation that's been around for many, many years, many generations, and at the edges is starting to look sort of drab and dreary and tired? There is no new growth, and so oftentimes the decision comes, gee, is it time to just put that plant out of its, or that church, out of its misery? Or are there things that we can do to replant that church, in a similar fashion, the way we do a replanting of a plant a house plant to give it a new lease on life. well, my next guest tonight, I think, would suggest the answer is absolutely so. He is a gardener of sorts, a missionary, uh, author, and um, professor at uh, Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. He spent uh, years in Bangkok, Thailand, and um, works as a, a church. An advisor in many respects, helping churches discover how a dying congregation can grow once again. The book is called Replant, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. Dr. Mark Devine, great to have you on the program tonight.
4: Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
2: This is a a painful process, isn't it? Uh, Number one, I think oftentimes painful for congregations to admit uh, that they are in fact uh, facing a very uncertain future.
4: It really can be, and um, uh, I really didn't set out to become sort of a, you know, a church a consultant or a fixer, but uh, once I became a professor and could no longer serve as a full-time pastor, I found myself really not knowing what to do with myself, and so I ended up becoming uh, an in, uh, a serial interim pastor for churches that are without a pastor, and then after the first couple of those, I really found myself in a new, uh, exciting ministry uh, with a growing mission field because 80% of churches in North America are declining. And I really found myself um, really looking at these churches very differently than it is just a way station for the next pastor, but trying to think, well, wait a minute, this church has been declining for so long. They've had one pastor after another. Is there something I can do in my unique position, since I don't want to stay permanently, that might help this congregation grow again? And I haven't always been successful, but it's really been exciting uh, to try to help
2: in these ways. You speak throughout the book of your experiences, specifically at um, the Calvary Baptist Church. Let's talk a bit about that. Uh, This is a church that you describe as having been in its third decade of decline, and, and certainly one of the big indicators that there was lots of trouble afoot. It went through the totality of eight pastors, four permanent, four interim in just 10 years. that That's what, like a year and a half or so per pastor? That certainly doesn't bode well in terms of the healthiness of that church, or at <laughs> the very least, the stick to it uh, of those called to lead.
4: I'm told that the average pastorate now, tenure of a, of a pastor in churches today in North America, hovers around two years. That's hard to believe. But um, it really is an indication of sort of the. Uh, the, the pathology, the lack of vision, uh, and the difficulties, and what happens oftentimes in these churches is that after the first two or three pastors uh, stay a very short time and leave, um, the the congregation itself lapses into a pattern of behavior that prevents it from being led. Inevitably, uh, highly motivated lay persons, often very well meaning, begin to occupy leadership turf that really belongs to a pastor and these congregations become without even realizing it virtually unleadable and so for all the good intention, intentions that many might have in the pockets of ministry that often exist in these churches they're really they've rendered themselves uh, resistant to any real visionary uh, strong pastoral leadership and usually until that, uh, is changed, it usually is Most of these churches never come back. Well, in, in all
2: fairness, uh, Dr. Devine, you, you speak in the book of, of the fact that there had been individuals that were in these positions, and I would imagine to the greatest degree, many of them Um, out of necessity, when we look at that high degree of turnover, I mean, suddenly from transitioning from one pastor to another, there are areas of need and care within uh, the greater life and body of the church and pastoral ministry that need time and need attention. And so uh, it would seem like a lot of these folks might have stepped into those positions, uh, probably of of good heart and will. But then uh, what are you suggesting? Something happens along the way where they They kind of uh, dig their heels in, and suddenly it it moves from, here's a deacon so-and-so or Sister chuch, so God bless her, is willing to step in while we're in the middle of a a crisis here. Pastors left, we've got an intern pastor who's trying to get the lay of the land, and so they're willing to come in and help out. And then what, it turns into uh, suddenly from um, good-hearted ministry to taking advantage of personal perks and privileges?
4: A lot of the decisions that a pastor might make or lead the congregation to make end up being made by powerful lay people. And they get used to doing that and they like to do it. And once a congregation sees pastors come and go quickly a few times, they they are slow to treat the next pastor as though he will be around for, a, for very long. And therefore his ability to gain their trust and lead is uh, is greatly diminished. And then, if a pastor comes in who's bound and determined to lead, then he faces resistance with entrenched sort of turf uh, uh, turf battles, where various people have staked out some turf that uh, they see as theirs, and they're protective of it. But as long as the pastor can't lead, uh, you know, if he if he can't have influence on that turf, then he really can't leave the congregation, and these pastors eventually give up and and they go.
2: If you've just joined the conversation, we're talking about a lot of the principles that gardeners use in bringing new life to a dying plant by replanting it. We're all familiar with the concept of church planting. What about the concept of church replanting? Some lessons on how a dying church can grow again. Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight. Maybe your church is going through some of this. Maybe you have individuals in your church that, as Dr. Devine suggests, have stepped in to help out during difficult times and suddenly now are intentionally or otherwise engaged in making decisions and taking on areas of authority, quite frankly, biblically, belong to the pastor, but out of emergency or short-term necessity they have taken. And suddenly now it's gone from, let me step in to help out, to essentially a usurping of position, authority, and spiritual responsibility that ultimately does not bode well for the life of that church. If you're in that kind of circumstance, you may want to just simply eavesdrop on our conversation. Maybe you want to dive a little bit deeper, and uh, I can understand not wanting to get out on the radio and uh, reveal your name or the church that you're involved with, but time out.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight. A look at replant, how a dying church can grow again. He had such an experience. You had served as a missionary in, in Thailand. At what point and how? what was the process, uh, Dr. Devine, where they, they called you to uh, First Calvary? And when you got there, what kind of a shape did you find the place in?
4: Well, I was just available uh, to serve as a supply preacher for churches that did not have a pastor or an interim pastor, and uh, there were people who knew that I had helped a troubling church, and they recommended me to this congregation. And I had a meeting with two of the leading lay uh, leaders there, and they they talked a really strong game of we need leadership. They were they were down to around, oh, 150 or so in a sanctuary, beautiful sanctuary that would Seat 600, it looked like a little Spurgeon's Tabernacle plunked down in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, but once I got in there, I realized that, that this church was virtually unleadable, and so they talked about leadership, but really they, they lapsed into a state where they really uh, treated pastors as an employee with discreet duties, you know, preach a sermon, uh, do the wedding, do the funeral, do some pastoral care, but really, leadership was not on the cards at all. And I began to think about that, pray about that, and dream about, was there, is there a way that this congregation uh, could reverse its decline and start to reach people for Christ in that neighborhood again?
2: In your book, you refer to them as members of the, the lay cartel, which I thought was brilliance. Uh, there is the sense of, of really sabotaging pastoral leadership because they've essentially usurped pastoral responsibility and authority. And we hear this every once in a while, particularly it seems to be uh, an excuse or pretext by so-called megachurches where we wish to have, a, uh, there's an administrative pastor, there's a pastoral pastor, there's the preaching pastor, uh, and, and we've divided the duties up so much so that it doesn't, at the end of the day, seem to be one individual that is accountable to God or, or responsible for anything. And then all this little laity running around as if they're controlling a, a, a small corporation or miniature fiefdom.
4: And one of the, de- the developments that you see in many of these uh, these historic churches that are in decline is that um, they will uh, resist on the basis, the stated basis, that they are protecting a great tradition. And that was one of the means by which they thwarted attempts to lead at First Calvary. But one of the most paradoxical and surprising things that happened uh, in Kansas City at this church is that I began to study the history of the church. I found that they had taken radical decisions many times that were risky, that, that required a lot of faith, that, had res- that were made in order to make the changes needed to advance the gospel. And so when I came to them with the, you know, the notion that we might consider joining with another congregation that had demonstrated uh, leadership and effectiveness in a cultural context just like ours, and they would provide the leadership, uh, I was able to take their history and say, if we face this opportunity according to our tradition, we will be open to significant change. And it kind of turned the tables on the, you know, the self-appointed protectors of the tradition at that church.
2: You know, I don't wish to—I want to get in trouble here with listeners and, and seem to come off as if I, I have utter disregard for tradition or uh, a sense of uh, spiritual legacy or history. But at the end of the day, as we, as we measure it purely by the yardstick of Scripture, I mean, am I wrong in saying that when we kind of distill it all down, it comes to a couple of basic uh, principles here, um, certainly the Great Commission, the great commandment discipleship evangelism i mean that that 's kind of the uh, the primary role of the church, and all of that seems to be very forward looking i I, I know that the Lord certainly is appreciative if a church has had a history of, uh, you know, having great men preaching in pulpits, and many have been run won to Christ down through the decades or the centuries, but uh, why do I have a lingering sense of sort of a, uh, okay, and so what have you done for me lately as part of, of the way <laughs> the Lord himself might, uh, might judge a church like that?
4: Well, the irony here was that I led the church to look forward by looking back just like you did. You reached backward to the Bible to, to talk about what churches should do now. And that's what I did with this congregation. They had had a tradition of doing some really risky uh, but, but doctrinally sound, faith-infused things in their past. And so the people who were who were touting themselves as the protectors of the tradition really weren't protecting the tradition. They were protecting recent uh, turf that they had occupied and the way decisions had been made over the last 20 years. But when you look at what had been happening over the last century, then that was a different kind of tradition, and you could find there many times in the church's history where they had made discipleship and evangelism and care for those who are hurting front and center. And so it wasn't a matter of don't look back, just look forward. There's like one passage in the Bible that says that, and people uh, gloss over the hundreds of passages where God says, remember, don't forget, remember, don't forget. And so the problem was not that they were looking back and remembering, but they weren't looking back far enough, deep enough, they weren't remembering the right things, and then facing the present and the future on the basis of the best of their past. There's a pastor right now in Chicago who's helping restart churches the way I did, and one of the things he says that I love is that when we restart churches, we don't erase their history. We have a shared history, but if that history's rooted in gospel advance, then they will not dig in and become a dysfunctional church that resists leadership.
2: Well, and again, I I have no objection to to history. In fact, I'm a a tremendous fan of it, and I believe standing on a a, a tradition and a a sense of uh, uh, connectedness, if you will, uh, down through the generations, I think that's wonderful and to be applauded and, and to be stood upon. But you stand on that foundation and that rich history that should then drive you and compel you to move forward, not to become paralyzed in simply saying, gee, look how great we used to be, uh, that, that never allows you to then have that forward looking sense in terms of, you know, our, our, our relationship with Christ is one that continues to grow and expand. Uh, so, too, ought that process of outreach and evangelism and discipleship, as we mentioned. And so, uh, that sitting in the history and allowing ourselves to become paralyzed where we're just stuck in it, isn't that largely what a lot of these churches wind up dying from?
4: That's exactly what they die from. And uh, so, that, and that is what I talked to them about. But now, what I didn't tell them is that they're dying because they care about the tradition. Actually, what I did was expand their view of tradition. Which then shame them when they uh, didn't put the advance of the gospel first, and so I kind of uh, claim the tradition ground rather than ceding it to those who were who had a selective view of it. And to the newer congregations, even if they're growing, let's say a new uh, church, uh, new leadership comes in, and the church starts to grow, if they treat the past. With uh, a case sera, sera, or just something that's you know good for historical, you know, trivial pursuit, then they end up with a with a maybe a, a temporary you know temporary life and, and growth, but it ends up being very very shallow because they don't they don't they don't really grasp what they've been bequeathed uh, uh, fr- from the past, and so I think there's a message about the past. That both sides tend to be getting wrong, mm. uh, and uh, and the, the the biggest light that shines on that is that some of those who want to be sort of fiercely forward looking, they keep turning back to uh, the reformers, turning back to the, to the Bible, and I want to say, okay, now you're now you're talking my language.
2: So we have to be cautious in finding that balance because some are. Oftentimes, um, uh, too reticent to to move or look forward, and they wish to just singularly cling to the past, and others are too rapid or in a rush to to dispense with the past in the process of moving forward. And there's something to be said about the mixture of the two. Let's take a time out on that point. Dr. Mark Devine is with us. We are talking about church replanting, what that means, what that looks like, what that might mean to you and your congregation. Stay with us. Time out, update on traffic, then back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Back to the conversation with Dr. Mark Devine. Let's get into some of your calls. We're talking about church replanting. We'll head off first to Hayward. Paul, good afternoon. Welcome. You're on KFAX with Dr. Mark Devine.
5: Uh, Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. I've been checking out a lot of churches. I grew up in the Bay Area. Grew up in a real large church and have been looking around uh, and visiting churches for the last 10 years or so. And I'm seeing one thing that's common in, because they are declining, and I'm asking you, uh, Pastor, if if you see this, uh, one of the churches that I I attend regularly has about 1,200 people going there, and on one Sunday the pastor asked by raise a hand of how many people in 2013 had led anybody to the Lord less than 12 hands went up out of over 400 people. So what I'm starting to understand with this is that uh, people are going to uh, chur- churches if they are you know, out of duty, they're getting jobs, they're, they're, they're uh, uh, sacred town ministries that they occupy for 25 years and won't let anybody in, and, and they're not learning to evangelize, and so this church that I've been attending now for nearly three years uh, I've, I haven't been invited to one person's house yet, uh, or out to lunch. Um, they had the glad-handing thing, and, and the, you know, shaking the hands get up and shake your neighbor's hands, all that stuff. But, but they're not teaching what Paul said about um, um, the gift of hospitality. Hmm. And the gift of hospitality, I think, is what's missing in the churches, because if a pastor does leave a church all of a sudden you know, for whatever reason, he dies, you know, whatever reason. The Church should be able to maintain itself, because the people have already learned how to really be a family, as well as be a family to their their neighbors and their co-workers. In most cases, most neighbors don't even know a Christian lives next door. They've not, they've not, they're not being taught hospitality. So, what,
4: what, what do you see? Do you see that as being something?
2: Wow, some really good observations. What about that, Doctor Divine?
4: I want to count a, a church in Columbus, Ohio, uh, related to this issue. It's called Xenos. and my uh, youngest son is a is a he's a student in in Columbus, and he's a member of that church. And they, for many years, have made discipleship. Uh, the heart and center of what they want to be about. They don't want anything to distract them from it. And it's a remarkable thing. And so they're, they're most strong in the ways that, that this church that you've spoken of uh, is weak. And I will say this. The, the trend is that nominal Christianity is going to weaken, and the, and the church is, is losing market share. But the churches that survive, uh, and thrive in this new environment are going to be stronger, because people are not going to use their time to be involved in in, in churches uh, that are not really meaningful and relevant to them. And I, but I certainly believe that one of the great weaknesses is just what you've spoken about, and that is can. Can disciples make other
2: disciples? Well, therein goes a real important key because whether you talk about a church learning what hospitality is or or the keys to evangelism, I mean, doesn't this really come down to the matter of of a lack of real proper discipleship? I mean, how many people show up to church every Sunday and they're kind of there out of out of duty or out of habit or a sense of obligation, and yet they they don't know a lot about the Savior that they allege to serve and have never had the experience of ever sharing their faith with anyone.
4: Absolutely, but I do think that kind of thing is peaking because fewer and fewer people are willing to do that anymore. And so uh, people who are in that state, they, they are dropping out of church uh, in, in droves. I'm finding some really exciting things happening with pastors who are in their 40s uh, that I, you know, were my students uh, 20 years ago and uh, they're they're planting and building churches that are really a great- co- contrast in these in these areas and i'm so I'm really quite hopeful uh that we're going to see uh we're, we're going to see stronger churches uh in these areas in the future
2: you are you getting a sense that the emphasis on And I'm going to meddle here for a moment. Uh, One of the things that I'm pretty good at, (laughs) Uh, there's been such an emphasis on so-called church growth seminars, seeker-sensitive churches, it seems as if we have to have a plan and formula, most of which comes down to simply good entertainment or not so good. Uh, as a means of increasing the size of our church, which a lot of pastors, if they're honest about it, realize we're really only increasing the church by shifting the sheep from one pasture to another. Are you suggesting then that you're starting to see a trend away from that and more back toward genuine discipleship, genuine evangelism, genuine church growth?
4: Yes, and I I believe that, um, you know, the the church growth movement, beginning with seeker-sensitive and then uh, purpose-driven Uh, and and various things that really the church growth movement has morphed. It has been chastened. Uh, Bill Hybels himself, you know, uh, uh, launched a survey and and an analysis of what was happening at his church, and he came out and said that all the problems that you decided are real, they are happening, and so this notion of uh, sort of, figuring out what the people can take and tailoring your sermons to it and then try to do the discipleship in some other room in the church is really not working. And so nowadays, I think that you really, knowing the size of a church doesn't tell you that much about it. Uh, As a serial interim pastor, that's what I'm seeing. The churches are very different. There's a lot of trial and error going on and that uh, a lot has been learned uh, about uh, the ineffectiveness of watering anything down.
2: And, and perhaps the, the big lesson here needs to be unlearning of what we thought were so-called experts in teaching us how to do church right, and relearning the fact that all the keys that are necessary are right there in front of us. It's a little book, in fact it's sold pretty well I understand, if you're in the right spot you even know the author personally. Uh, The book, of course, is called The Bible. Another one that I might recommend, uh, secondary to that, that's not a bad one either, particularly on this topic, is the one written by Dr. Mark Devine, "Replants: How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. And uh, we appreciate the insights into this uh, very complicated topic. And uh, Dr. Devine, hopefully we can persuade you to come back for more, and we can dive a little bit deeper. And uh, again, our thanks to Dr. Mark Devine. The book, by the way, available through David C. Cook Publications or at uh, the usual suspects, including Amazon.com.
1: Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group, all rights reserved